You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have a really fun and exciting guest, Mr. Chris Voss. Chris is the best-selling author of the book, Never Split the Difference, and he's an expert in negotiations. Chris is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, and he spent 24 years in the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit. So without further delay, sit back and enjoy this outstanding interview with Mr. Chris Voss. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Preston Pish. We have an exciting guest for you here today. As our listeners know, we are big on reading, and there are a few books that I read as many times, or should I say reread as many times, as Never Split the Difference. It's by far one of the most important business books I've ever read. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we have the privilege of having the author, Chris Voss, with us here today. Chris, welcome on our show. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a pleasure to be on it. Chris, your background, at first glance, it looks like it's as far away from business as it can get for you having experience as a former FBI hostess negotiator. But as our listeners soon know, and I'm sure they will agree with me that it can't be more business than what you're actually doing. So perhaps the best way of explaining that is to go back to the very first hostage assignment you had back on September 30th, 1993. Could you tell us what happened? I'm working in the FBI in New York. Hostage negotiated with the FBI, member of the Joint Terrorist Task Force, about 8.30 in the morning. Bank alarm goes off, Brooklyn, New York. Buddy of mine walks up to my desk, says there's a bank robbery with hostages in Brooklyn. Let's go. Me and Charlie jumped into a car. We got out there. We found ourselves on top of the bank without realizing it. I mean, we were in the inner perimeter, which is normally where you're not supposed to start your day. But so we bail out of the Crown Vic big four-door American-made car, low-crawled to the nearest bank across the street, which is where the command post was, and went inside and got ready to negotiate. Turned out there were two bank robbers in the bank with three hostages. We didn't know how many there were at the time. We thought maybe there were up to seven bank robbers. But we got on the phone and started to talk them out. Human interaction is just decision-making. And it's the context changes, but decision-making is the same. Whether it's business, whether it's hostage, and you're talking about a bank robbery with hostages in Brooklyn. And the business plan that they started the day with went awry. You know, there's an American general that once said, uh, no plan ever survives the first encounter with the battlefield. You know, that sounds like people's business operations. But we got into the middle of it. And in hindsight, the bank robber on the inside was the classic CEO negotiator. He was trying to avoid being backed into a corner. He he was hiding the amount of influence that he had, and he wanted to maximize his revenue for the day. It ended up, we put a hostage negotiation team together between the FBI and the NYPD. PD had their negotiators out there. We trained together. You know, we understood the language. We didn't call it emotional intelligence back then, but that's what it is. And we spoke the same emotional intelligence. They put a PD negotiator on first. I was his coach. The commander of the PD, Hugh McGowan, brilliant dude, brilliant man. He ran the operation. 
And we started to negotiate. The bank robber on the other side, the first guy that got on the phone, he was really evasive in a really brilliant way. He tried to make himself look powerless when, in fact, he was one that had all the decision making on the other side. But he kept saying, like, you know, there are other guys in here with me. They're more dangerous than I am. You know, I don't know what they're going to do. You know, he realized that we had snipers, you know, and if we thought he was a threat, maybe one of our snipers would shoot him. So he kept talking about how dangerous everybody else was. So he wouldn't be a threat. And the other thing that was brilliant, he did everything he could do to manage the threats. You know, I got to put you on hold for a minute. The girls want something to eat. You know, I got to put you on hold for a minute. The girls have to go to the bathroom. He kept acting like he had taken great care of the hostages when, in fact, they'd been very abusive to them up to that point in time. So, Chris, one of the ideas that you talk about in the book is this idea of mirroring. Explain to our audience a little bit more about this. Just repeating the last one to three words, roughly, of what the person has just said. Obviously, you can't repeat less than one word. You might repeat as many as five, kind of word for word. It's not paraphrasing. You get more than five, you're paraphrasing. And it triggers an automatic response on the other side, particularly someone who's being really guarded or really focused in what they're saying. Now, the bank robber, in this case, he was extremely guarded and cautious about every word that came out of his mouth. And we got a little bit farther into the scenario now that the PD negotiator had been taken off, the police department, the NYPD guy, and I'd replaced him. And I was on the phone with this guy, and it was time to confront him. And you can confront as long as you're not aggressive about it. You got to be gentle. You got to use a good tone of voice. You know, what I would refer to as the late night FM DJ, you know, the soothing, calming voice. So I'm using this tone of voice on this guy. I can be very assertive if I use that voice. And I said, you know, there's a van that we have out here. Now, we had his van and we knew it was his van. We just needed him to admit it. So I said, we got a van out here and we've identified all of the drivers to all the vehicles except this one. And, you know, he got nervous and he said, well, we don't have a van. And I mirrored him. I said, you don't have a van? He said, we only have one van. You only have one van. He said, yeah, well, chase my driver away. Now, I got no idea what this guy's talking about at this point. I'm actually confused. But since I know how to mirror, I'm mirroring him, and he continues to talk. He just admitted they got a van outside. Then he admitted that they had a getaway driver that had gotten away. He just roped into one more of his accomplices without even knowing it. The mirroring kept him talking, and he was probably the most control-oriented negotiator I ever ran across. And Amir was just brilliant at not only keeping him talking, but getting him to say things that he didn't plan on saying. If you're not familiar with the concept, it almost sounds like a Jedi mind trick kind of thing, and people might think, oh, God, like I could so easily tell if people would be doing it to me, but at least I can say from my own experience, I've tried using it and have it done to me, it's just different. You, know, you don't notice it. I don't know if you do, Chris. I mean, you're an expert, but it's so subtle that it's almost unbelievable how effective it can be. I think I have a high EQ. I don't have a particularly high IQ. The high IQ and EQ people love mirrors. Like when I run across somebody that said, man, I use it all the time. I love mirrors. That may be the only thing I do. 
almost every single time it's somebody who's brilliantly smart in all areas. And I am not. I am not a high IQ guy. Consistently, I don't know if it's the simplicity of it and the simultaneous elegance that appeal to the high IQ people. But if you're immediately attracted to mirrors, I'd be willing to bet that you tested probably really high on IQ. You just mentioned that before, Chris, that you could use late night DJ voice. And, and actually, you introduced three different types of voices in negotiation. And that might sound a little surprising to our listeners because most of us are probably just thinking about us having one voice. And perhaps they didn't even think about it in the first place that you can have different types of voices. So could you lay out for us the three different types we can use and in which situation they are applicable? For instance, in this example, in this story here. The three types, first of all, the late night FM DJ voice is really the voice of a really analytical person. You know, it's a person that likes to think things through at a measured pace. And so consequently, that's the voice that they use. Now, the great thing about that voice is it also causes the other person to be more thoughtful, to slow down, to calm down. There's neuroscience that backs that up. It has to do with mirror neurons in our brains and neurochemicals. And it's the main reason that hostage negotiators just don't get in arguments. And business people do all the time. But hostage negotiators don't because a smooth and calming voice actually has an effect on the other person's brain chemistry. Then there's the assertive voice, you know, the the direct and honest voice. Like, you know, this is what I want and this is when I want it. You know, you want to make a deal. This is what I need. Again, it's a neuroscience reaction. It makes people combative. That's not good for your negotiations. The third voice is, you know, is, is the accommodator's voice. It's somebody that smiles when you talk to them. You can feel the smile when they talk. And again, there's a, a neurochemical reaction. And you're 31% smarter in a, in a positive frame of mind. So even if you make yourself smile, You actually make yourself smarter and consequently, the other person feels it and they get in a positive frame of mind. And and so you get great collaborative negotiations when you smile. And there's actually, there's a neurochemical response behind it. There's data that backs up the truth. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So Chris, I really like how you're contrarian on this next uh, topic that we're going to cover uh, in your book, you talk about not getting to yes, which is a very popular uh, negotiation book that I'm sure most people are familiar with. Uh, but you talk about getting to no. So talk to us about this idea. The problem with yes is there's always a catch with yes. You know, there's always a hidden trap. There's always a catch. And people still teach the yes momentum or momentum selling and they refer to every yes as a microagreement or a tie down. Well, that's a catch. You know, that's a trap. And if you get somebody into three microagreements, then they have to make the big agreement. So you, t- you start to tie them down. You take away their autonomy. Now, people feel this. And everybody in the world has had this done to them multiple times so that instantly their intuition is getting triggered, their warning bells, their internal alarms. As soon as somebody starts to try to get them to say yes, they start thinking like, what's the trap here? What's the tie down? How is this going to back me into a corner? I mean, I I literally, I've had people say to me, if I say yes to this, what does it commit me to? What have I let myself in for? So even if you're not trying to tie people down, as soon as you begin to model behavior, the tricksters are modeling. They think you're a trickster. I mean, I think it's an African saying, you know, once bitten by a snake, you're afraid of ropes. People overreact to fears. And that's what this getting to yes problem is. Every yes feels like a trick or a trap. So there's an automatic aversion to the word. Now, the insane thing is people are taught that when they say no, that they've just protected themselves from the trap. So it's the stupidest change in the question from, do you have a few minutes to talk to, is now a bad time to talk? Instead of saying, do you agree? We teach people to say, do you disagree? 
instead of saying, does this look like something that would work for you? We teach people to say, is this a ridiculous idea? It just switching from yes to no to start with has a massive change in the way people react. They don't feel trapped. They've been conditioned at saying no protects them. So they, they relax. They calm down. They're more agreeable having said no. You also mentioned there that if you want the other party to commit, we need for them to commit not one, but three times. Could you please explain, perhaps provide an example of those three steps before you potentially close a business deal? Change your thinking. Don't look at yes as agreement. You know, you're looking for agreement. You're not looking for yes. And really, when people really agree and they feel like they agree, they don't say yes. They say that's right. So I might say, so it sounds like if we could work out all the details on this, it seems like you see some value here. You're going to say that's right. And I might say, so that's right. And they go like, yeah, well, you know, if, if all the details are worked out and you meet our objectives, then this would work for us. And so now you paraphrase it. Basically, the sequence is you label what they've just said. It sounds like that if all the details are worked out, you guys could implement this process. A label starts with the terms, the words it sounds like. That's labeling. It's a verbal observation. You're not really asking a question. You're making a verbal observation. And then whatever they respond with, you mirror. We talked about the mirror before. They may just say, that's right. You mirror, that's right. You go, that's right. You know, you put an upward inflection on it. They're going to give you a longer answer. The longer answer is you paraphrase. Basically, you've got an agreement in three different forms based on the use of three different skills, but it's all around the same concept. So it's expanding. It's just getting so far beyond the limitations of yes, you're getting into actual collaboration. And the more words you get out of the other person's mouth, the more vested they are in the deal the more they're going to feel like they want to do it. Implementation is critical. In the previous question, we talked about how counterintuitive it is that we need to get to know in the negotiation. What perhaps is even more counterintuitive is the so-called acquisition audit. And perhaps that's also why it's even more effective. What is an acquisition audit? The accusations audit is take an audit, take an inventory of all the accusations they might make against you. Not that you would make to them, but they would make against you. All the insane, crazy things, that unfair, ridiculous things that they might think. If you're in sales, you know that people don't trust salespeople. That's an accusation that they're making before you've even spoke to them. It's not fair. It's unfair. They don't even know you. How could that be fair? It doesn't matter. What are the sane, insane, ridiculous accusations that they might potentially make? Now, just list them out. If they've agreed to a meeting, at some point in time, they're going to think the meeting is a waste of time. You start up by saying, like, you're probably wondering if this meeting is a waste of time. You don't deny it. You call it out. The massive difference is never deny a negative. Just call it out. And we know from neuroscience, actually, this is the way people make decisions. They have to get past the negatives. They don't ignore them. They got to deactivate them. They got to reconcile them. To some degree, they have to put them to rest. Well, the most effective way to reconcile a negative thought is to simply state it. You know, in the United States, we've got a phrase, the elephant in the room. You know, what's the problem? 
the accusation is the elephant in the room. You don't get rid of the elephant in the room by either ignoring it or denying that it's there. What actually the best way to get rid of the elephant in the room is say, hey, you know, you're probably thinking there's an elephant in the room. You point it out. You don't deny it. And then you don't follow it up. But here's why it's not there. You don't explain it away. You just call it out. It's the most effective way to deactivate negatives on earth. There's no more effective way to deactivate negatives than to simply call it out, to label it, and then to let that label sink in and diffuse the problem. You have a very simple technique in terms of identifying whether or not you've been successful with the accusation audit. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want to hear from the counterpart? Well, you know, the beautiful thing is when they stop you and they say, no, 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 you're being too hard on yourself. Now, the interim steps, they're going to respond one of three ways to your listing of the negatives. Again, and you're not explaining, you're not denying, and you're not following on any other than a list. They're either going to give you silence, they're going to say, that's right, or they're going to say, no, 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 you're being too hard on yourself. Let, you know, let, let's get to it. Now, silence means you're on the right track and you haven't gone far enough. That's right means, of course, you nailed it perfectly. You deactivated everything. They're now ready to listen. You're trying to put them in a frame of mind where they will listen to you. And then if they say, no, 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 you're being too hard on yourself. That's too much. They've actually, not only have they said that's right, but they've stepped over to your side of the table. They've embraced you. They're helping you. They're on your side now. You're now in complete collaboration. And those are the only three responses to the accusations audit. Well, if I was in a salary negotiation, I'd say, look, you're going to think I'm greedy. You're probably going to think I'm self-centered. You're probably going to think I'm not a team player. You're probably going to think I'm not concerned about the future of the company. You're probably going to be shocked at how high my salary demands are. And all intents and purposes, every deal that my company negotiates, when someone is asked to sell price, our response is ridiculously high, more than you've ever paid, more than you plan on paying. And then we go completely silent. Now, we don't haggle. I say haggling is for hags. We don't bargain. We don't do that anymore. We have a price and we over-deliver, always. And we're the most expensive and we get paid and we just raised our prices. Because what we also found out was if after I've said that my price is ridiculously high, the person on the other end of the conversation is going to stop and imagine a number higher than I had in mind. And so then when I give my number, my number is actually a relief. And we had people say to our director of sales so many times, like, oh, wow, I thought it was going to be much higher than that. She started asking, okay, well, now that you know, what did you imagine? And they started quoting us ridiculously high prices. And we thought, wow, they were prepared to pay that price. <laughs> so we just raised our prices. You know, if, if you have a lousy product, you can do this too. But you're going to destroy your business because, first of all, the price you had before, it wasn't worth what you were charging. But if you believe in over-delivering the way that we do, then you're entitled to every penny, every dollar, every euro, whatever your means of exchange is, you're entitled to all of it. You should never cut your price. If you over-deliver, you should never cut your price. You know, it's so elegant the way that you try to prime the other person. You just let them think there for a second. And one of the favorite stories that I got from your book is the way that you can always get a late checkout of a hotel room. And I know it seems like I'm digressing here, 
But it's just such a neat story that I'm really sorry, but I, I had to ask you to tell that and then ask for people to test it out themselves. I absolutely love this. So please go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and it's so ridiculous too because, like, I'm in a hotel the other day, and I didn't get a late checkout. I called down from my room, and I go like, "Look, I need a late checkout." I go like, "You know, we can't give you one. We could give you one for seventy-five dollar charge." And I'm thinking like, you know, do I really have to do this? Because I didn't do it right. Because I know that they're going to give it to me. So I got lazy, and so I said, "Okay, thank you very much," and I hung up the phone, and I walked down to the front desk. And I walked right up to the person I'd just been on the phone who just denied me a late checkout. And I looked at this young lady and I said, I am getting ready to ruin your entire day. You know, her shoulders went down. She slouched. She looked down. She took a deep breath. And she said, okay, what is it? And I said, I need a late checkout. She goes, oh, 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 okay, sure, sure. She went four o'clock. You want four? Here, you can have it right away. (laughs) This is a person that on the phone, when I didn't do it right, the priming that you talked about, you know, we refer to this also as emotional anchoring. But in emotional anchoring advance, she just told me no. I'd have saved my time in the very beginning if I had just done it right from the beginning. Because now I had to walk down to the front desk and I had time to walk back. But I got lazy. You know, I didn't want to take the other person's emotions into account. I got very self-centered. I was just focused on what I wanted. And it took longer. And as soon as I took the other person's emotions into account, I saved myself tons of time. So these different techniques that you talked about, Chris, how important is it that you sit in front of that person? And how much can you do, say, over the phone? Well, with practice, you can handle it all over the phone. I mean, there's a massive amount of information that comes from somebody's tone of voice when you practice listening for it. So it's only practice. You know, a hostage negotiator does everything. We never looked at anybody. What did that mean? We just got in our practice. I get used to hearing everything. And with practice, you can. I mean, it's all there. The brain is capable of processing the data with the practice. Your gut instincts, your subconscious processes a massive amount of information. I mean, a mind-boggling amount of information which is why as soon as people start listening to their intuition, their intuition actually gets very good. It's just their brain interpreting data. All the data is there. You just got to give your brain the chance to do it. Interesting. So Chris, because this is an investing podcast, we've covered prospect theory and loss aversion multiple times. And how to use those concepts whenever we want to invest in the stock market. But how can we use these concepts in business, in negotiations? Loss aversion, so then, as you know, loss things twice as much as an equivalent gain. And the reality is loss is the overriding factor in human decision-making. How do you factor that into business? Principally in a business negotiation, the real enemy is the status quo, getting someone to change what they're doing. They're more likely to change to avoid a loss. How do you get them to think about the loss? You can't say, look, you're going to lose all this money if you don't do this. What you have to do is a little bit of what we talked about before, you got to use a good how question or what question. You know, what happens if you do nothing? What are the consequences of inaction? If your rate of return that you're offering is 15%, or let's say it's 7%, you know, whatever your percentage is, you can say, hey, look, make this decision and your rate of return will be 7%. Or you can say, stay where you are, do nothing. 
and it will cost you 7% every day. While you're sleeping, it's going to cost you 7%. That's making a decision to avoid a loss. Instead of making a decision to accomplish a gain, do this and gain 7%. You say do nothing and lose 7%. The second one has a higher compliance rate. Now, does it work every time? Nothing works every time. You have to go with what has the highest compliance rate and loss aversion has the highest compliance rate. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. 
That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So Chris, one of the really fascinating parts that you talk about in the book is using odd or numbers that just seem like they're, um, that they've been calculated, if you will. Uh, talk to us about why this works so well. They feel more solid to the other side. They feel more thought through. An even number feels like a soft number, like an estimate, like a temporary placeholder. The pricing around the world is triggered to that. You can't buy anything for a dollar or for a euro or whatever your unit of exchange is. You can't buy it anywhere. It's always an odd number. It works everywhere. Every society on earth uses odd numbering in their pricing because it feels better to the other side. And then you start to kick it up to the next level. Like I've got a colleague that's selling some training for $55 a person because he's gotten out of the 1999, $149 or the $1.49. You know, he's gotten away from numbers that end with nine. So he likes 55 and it just feels like something about that makes it work for the pricing that he's doing. So this isn't pricing globally. Just take advantage of it in your negotiations. We always coach people to make counteroffers in odd numbers. And certainly your last offers got to be in an odd number. That is a great point because it seems like you can't do anything more. Like giving everything away and, you know, in 53 cents. I absolutely right. love those examples. And I think that to our audience, you know, they're listening to you and like they heard you saying, well, you know, in, in our company, we don't really hackle. And they might look at you and say, well, I'm not Chris. You know, I don't have any hostess negotiation skills. Perhaps they think luckily they have a very different background and they're used to negotiations where at the end of the day, it comes down to which slice of the pie you're getting and the counterparty is getting. And so they might feel that from time to time, they're being forced into some real bare knuckle bargaining. One of the things you really picked out from your book was at the FBI, you learned this model called the Ackerman model for those type of situations. Could you please explain to us how to use that system? Ackerman model is the most effective bargaining system out there, bar none, when you get into bargaining. It's based on a dynamic of three again. You see the dynamic of three in human nature prop up over and over again. So it's based on you're going to plan out for three rounds of bargain. You come up with a target price and you're going to allow yourself to be moved into that target price in three increments. Your increments have to be decreasing increments. Every move that you make has to be smaller than the one before. The other side will feel the increments getting smaller. They will feel victory every step of the way, but they will feel each victory was harder and harder won. So that if you get to your number, they felt like they got everything they could. And that number then becomes a tremendous victory for them, which if they don't take it, they've lost it. Again, this is this loss aversion. People don't want to lose victories. You want to make them feel like they won because they're more likely to stick to it. So the principal concepts are three rounds of decreasing increments, decreasing incremental changes. Critical that each change is in a decreasing increment. Use of odd numbers. And then in between those three, the other side has to counter 
Otherwise, you're bargaining against yourself, which is what everyone in the world is trying to get you to bargain against yourself, which you cannot do because you're taking yourself hostage and you're losing. So the other side's got a counteroffer. And then you have to apply lots of paraphrasing, summarizing, tactical empathy in each round, which also, again, makes the other side feel like they've worked really hard for the outcome. Plus, there's a very real chance that they'll settle on your number sooner. You might not even get to your third number. A lot of people come to the table with Ackerman. They're going to come in with an offer that's roughly 65% of where they want to be. And then with enough tactical empathy, they end up right at that number. I mean, they're shocked. I mean, shocked. No shortage of people using Ackerman have ended up at their first number because they put so much tactical empathy in with that number that they never had to come off. Our listeners might be a bit overwhelmed right now. They listen to this interview and they're like, Chris is right. I need to do these, you know, 12 different things next time I go to meeting. And they're already, you know, they're too confused. So it's kind of like analysis paralysis. So if we can just give them like one thing where like, this is effective, this is simple, try it out. If you just have to mention one thing, what would you recommend people starting with sort of to apply these techniques in their daily lives? I'll mention one thing and I'm going to give some people some guidance on how to work it all into their repertoire because you can if you break it down into small things. And, and that's what I love about you wanting to start with one small thing. The other thing that's great about this too is as soon as you begin to improve at all, the biggest jumps of improvement are at the beginning like with any skill. So it's just get a little bit better and you're going to see a rate of return. It's huge. The first thing to do is really, you know, just let the other side go first and try to paraphrase whatever they've said. Don't argue, don't counter offer. Don't make your value proposition. I mean, they got a pitch they want to make, let them pitch it. Make an effort to hear them out. If you've heard them out really well, they're going to say, that's right. A bunch of your deals will make themselves as soon as your counterpart says that's right. Now, how many of them will it make? It doesn't matter because now those are made and you don't have to put any more work on them. You just put a whole bunch of time back into your life. So make an effort to just summarize, paraphrase what the other side has said. Get a that's right out of somebody before you do anything else. Whatever percentage of deals will make themselves on a spot, now you can put a little more effort into the other deals. But just get a that's right out of somebody. So Chris, instead of saying, do this one thing, how about, uh, what would you say is a common mistake that you see a lot of people make? Being a yes addict. I mean, just like, do you have a few minutes to talk? Does what I said make sense? Have I got that right? I mean, there's so many ways that people are addicted to yes. And the problem is, again, just because you like hearing it, you got to remember the other side feels like you're trying to trick them, trap them, tie them down. So every time you hear the delightful yes, which makes you feel like the angels are singing, the other side feels like they're being trapped. They're being tricked. They're backing themselves into a corner. So it's good for you. It's horrible for them. This whole yes thing. I mean, get out of yes. I mean, just stop trying to get people to say yes. You'll change your conversation. Plus, you'll find if you're no longer looking for yes, you're actually listening. 
You're paying attention to what they're actually saying. You're actually having a conversation. As soon as you get out of yes, all your interactions will improve. Chris, this has been absolutely amazing having a chance to speak with you. And I'm sure the audience would like to learn more. So first of all, where can they learn more about you, but also your company, Black Swan Group? The best place is just go to the website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. And the website is a gateway to everything. We have a lot of free content. We got a lot of stuff that you can get for free. The newsletter is free. You can go to the website and sign up. We've got PDF guides. You know, we got a negotiation preparation guide. We got a lot, a lot, a lot of free tools that you can use to get a long way. You combine it with the book. You're going to put yourself in a position to make a big difference in your life starting this week. And you can begin to make small little improvements every day. And in a very short period of time, you're going to find that negotiation is fun and you're very effective and you've got more time. And before we just let you go, the one last thing I want to ask you, Chris, is that some people are might thinking, why is it called Black Swan Group? There's a really interesting story to that name. So I don't know if I could briefly ask you to mention why is it called Black Swan Group? Yeah, the impact of the highly improbable, the little things that you wouldn't imagine make all the difference in the world. You know, originally, the black swan was in 16th century Europe that there were only white swans. And people thought, you know, there's no such thing as a black swan. A black swan would be a game-changing, a world-changing event. And then they discovered black swans in Australia. And people were like, holy cow, there are black swans. It's phenomenal. This is crazy. And this metaphor has been applied to modern day times, to the little things that make all the difference. And in negotiations, these tiny little steps make all the difference in the outcome. You uncover things that'll change everything. Find the black swans in a negotiation and come up with better deals than you ever imagined you could get. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be speaking with us here on the Ambassadors Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right. As we're letting Chris go, We're now ready to answer a question from the audience, and this question comes from Mark. Hi, Preston. Hi, Stig. It's Mark Gillings calling from the UK. I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for a fantastic and informative show. I've been listening now for the last six months or so, and I've really picked up a lot of tips and really appreciate it. I wonder if you could possibly help me as I'm starting to put together a little bit of a portfolio. And I came across something in... Uh, a book I'm reading called The Naked Trader, uh, just in regards to using shorts uh, as a balancer for my portfolio. Now, at present, I run indexes um, like the FTSE 100 and so on, but I've seen that there's something called the SUK2, which shorts twice the value of the FTSE 100. And I'm wondering, is it possible to create an all-weather portfolio between special types of ETF traded funds, but in opposite correlation of each other? I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you very much. We previously here on the show talked about the all-weather portfolio, but just quickly to sum it up for everyone to follow. It's an approach that, that Red Dahlia has made famous, and you're basically taking a combination of different asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, and gold, to make sure that your portfolio can perform in all seasons of the financial markets. But to your question, whether or not you can use shorts in an all-weather type of portfolio, 
The answer is yes, in theory, but it's likely not as effective in reality. You could perhaps even consider diversifying out of the FTSE for that reason alone, for instance, into global equities. So you're based in the UK, so that's why you refer to the FTSE. But for all our American listeners, the argument is basically the same if they would do it to the Dow or the S&P 500. Shorting is generally quite expensive, so limiting exposure to equities in general will be a cost saver. And then invest into an asset class with a yield, and shorting does not have a yield, that is inversely correlated instead. That way you can have your cake and eat it too. If you want to have a more neutral exposure to the stock market, there's also a different option, even though it's outside the scope of the other weather portfolio. If you think that one stock will relatively outperform another, but you don't want to count on the tailwind of the stock market to help you do so, you can go long individual stock in, say, for instance, Bank of America, and then short Wells Fargo. That way, even if the stock market tanks, you can make a profit if you write about the relative performance of the two stocks. And if you want, you can even do the same thing with two different ETFs, which it sounds like, Mark, is probably more would be getting at, given that you mainly invested in indexes. Generally, I would say that anything that involves shorting, though, is a bit more sophisticated. And for the vast majority of investors, I would much rather recommend that you diversify into different assets and asset classes rather than into shorting if you want to lower your volatility. Yeah. So for me on this, I I am very worried <laughs> of, of doing anything short these days. And the main reason why is because you you have central banks and governments around the world that are uh, demonstrating a desire to print and to print at no holds bar. I mean, it is just, it's very different than the cultural setting that we had during the Great Depression, which was let the businesses fail. And uh, if you've taken on too much leverage, you should fail. Uh, I just think culturally, everyone's looking at the government and saying, why aren't you printing more? And that's pretty much seen collectively across both parties and and uh, on Wall Street, pretty much anywhere you go, anywhere in the world, that's pretty much the mindset. So my opinion is that um, we we might have these deflationary uh, liquidity crunches that are going to manifest themselves, but I kind of suspect that governments around the world are going to step in and print at uh, unseen levels. And so when you think about how a short performs, um, it's in nominal terms. So if if they're nominally just adding more and more fiat units into the system, I, I'd be very concerned having a long-term short position in pretty much anything. Uh, so I, I don't know that I can really help you with uh, a response because I'm, I'm really kind of just, it's hard for me to see past what I just described. And so hopefully uh, between my response and Stig's response there, Mark, uh, we got you something that was of some kind of value. Uh, for asking such an awesome question, which this is an awesome question, and I think it's something very important for people to be thinking about, especially during these times, we're going to give you free access to our TIP finance tool, which helps you find uh, just fantastic companies that are uh, pumping out some good free cash flows and that are trading on the market for a good price. Uh, not only can you do that, but then you can look at how correlated those picks are to other picks that you have in your portfolio. And that includes ETFs and stocks. 
So uh, it also has a momentum tool and all sorts of things that help you and assist you with your uh, financial journey. So really excited to be able to give that to you. And uh, for anybody else out there, if you want to get a question played on our show, go to asktheinvestors.com. And if your question gets played on the show, you get a free subscription to our TIP finance tool. All right, guys, Preston, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Investors Podcast. We will see each other again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.